This morning's scripture comes from Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. There's hardback Bibles near you, Numbers, and the words are on the screen. Numbers 21, verse 4 through verse 9. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. And the people sent fiery, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Casey, and I'm uh, one of the pastors here. And uh, if you're with us for the first time, we're we're really glad you're here. Um, It's May, and so that means there are literally thousands of things going on. Um, And we're just glad you made time for this. Uh, we are at the very, very end of uh, a series that we've been walking through the, the Exodus story. And so in walking through the Exodus story, uh, we've been trying to lay, and that includes numbers. I know you, some of you thought you had me here. We've been in numbers last two weeks. Uh, but in walking through the Exodus story, uh, it's God intervening for a people who are trapped a people who were stuck in slavery, a people who, by the time he intervened, they'd been in slavery for 400 years or or more, that the people, that's all they knew. That was their normal. They didn't know anything else. They never knew what it was like to be free from those chains or that oppression or that work. They were born into it, and it's everything that they knew. And yet God saw them. It says God heard their groaning. God remembered his promises. And he raised up a leader to come and to lead them into freedom. And so, I mean, as we've walked through this, I mean, we've seen God miraculously come to their aid. God over and over has stepped into their lives to say, I will provide for you. I have brought you into the wilderness by the way of my mighty hand. The strongest army in the world most likely was crushed in the Red Sea. I have delivered you. I have brought you here. And it's a wilderness. Like there's no way this place can sustain you. So I've sustained you. You can't sustain yourself. The land can't sustain you. Your circumstances can't sustain you. But I can sustain you. And he led them all the way to the promised land with that promise being there over and over and over. I'm going to give you a land. It flows with milk and honey. I'm going to give the land to you. Over and over the promise came to them. And they stood on the borders of the promised land. And they said, man, we don't know. We're not sure. 
And they rebelled against God. And they said, we want to go back to Egypt. We don't want to do this. It would be better for us to die in Egypt. It would be better for us to die in the wilderness. And God said, okay. But he said, two of you will see the promised land. Joshua and Caleb will see the promised land because they believed and they trusted. And your children, they will not be slaves. They will see the promised land. But for those who didn't believe, you can have the wilderness. But I won't forsake you. I will be with you. Like the story itself is gripping. And over and over, like we've looked at this story and we've seen that, uh, man, we see so many archetypes of the gospel of God saying, this is how I love my people. This is how I provide for my people. This is how I will free my people. This is how I will save them. And we get to this story. And it's such a clear picture of the gospel. Like, I'm going to contend without what we see in the person of Jesus Christ lifted up on a cross. This doesn't make sense. I'm going to contend it doesn't make sense. And yet we also see some things that are real familiar. We see a bronze snake lifted up. We see the medical you know, symbol that still exists today lifted up. This is all about our healing. It was... Um, the summer after my senior year, and uh, man, I am too tall for this. That is so rare for me. Um, summer after my senior year, I, uh, my grandma had come to visit. My mom had smoked a uh, chicken uh, in the smoker, and it was kind of like late lunch, and I had just finished mowing the yard, and my grandma Joy was there, and she's so much fun. She was just so much fun. And so we sit down to eat, and I was, I was, I was famished, if, that, if I can say that. I was starving. And so I start to eat, and I forget to chew, and I swallow this big, like, piece of chicken and it gets stuck in my throat kind of low and I remember kind of feeling it right there like that doesn't feel right and so I took a drink of water and it didn't work and so I did what I thought seemed rational I go to the bathroom so I could choke in privacy so I wouldn't be embarrassed and so I leave there and I'm sitting there looking in the mirror and you know my face is a little bit red and I'm not choking right now but I'm like man I know it's stuck there I know I'm choking on chicken, even though there are no visible signs of my imminent death. I know I'm choking on chicken right now. And then suddenly, like, my, my saliva would build up enough that then I was actually choking. And so then I'd cough my saliva up. I mean, picture it, it was a beautiful moment. And so then I'd sit there, I'd be okay again. And I think, maybe it's over. And so for like two minutes, I'd be okay until the saliva picked back up. And then I was choking on my own saliva and I'd cough it out. This three-minute cycle of death happened like four or five times in the privacy of the locked bathroom because I was embarrassed. Not a good idea. And so finally, I realized... I need help. I could die. I need help. So I walk in to my family all gathered around this Saturday afternoon. They're all laughing and talking about things. And I inform them about my impending death, about this circumstance that they can't see. I look at them and say, I am choking on chicken right now. And they just look at me. And then my sweet grandma Joy smirks and laughs at me. And so I'm like, no, 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 just wait, wait. And then slowly the saliva built up, and then I choked, and I coughed, and I spit, and they got me a red cup, and so all this stuff, the solo cup. And the system happened, the cycle happened three or four more times, and then finally my grandma was like, well, maybe we need to take you to the emergency room. And she laughed at me. So that's what we did. 
And so, unbeknownst to me, there was also a rodeo in town, so people were actually dying. Um, And so we get to the ER, and I walk in, and this, like, old, battle-hardened ER nurse looks up, looks at me, looks around me, and looks at me again. He's like, can I help you? And I'm like, yeah, I'm choking on chicken. And she looks at me, and she kind of looks around, and I'm like, no, no, just wait. And so I wait for the three-minute cycle to happen. It felt like 40 minutes as she just stared at me like I'm, you know, like I'm trying to beat the system somehow. And so then I start choking again, and I spit into my red cup, which might as well, it's a life-saving device. It might as well have been an oxygen tank. And so I spit into this cup, and she kind of smirks. I hear my grandma behind me smirking also. And they escort me into a room, and they start to give me muscle relaxers. They start to threaten surgery. Suddenly, all my friends show up. This is before social media. This was in the 1900s, people. Social media didn't exist. They all gather around. I mean, there's actually people who are dying, who've been stepped on by bulls. And I'm in my little room with all my friends gathering around, and they start talking about, well... If these muscle relaxers don't work, we're going to have to do surgery. And I'm like, oh, we are not going to do that. And so I take this water bottle, and finally I cough this piece of chicken up, and it might as well have been the whole chicken. I mean, I'm sitting there. I had this life-threatening thing inside of me that no one could see. It appeared to be well so much of the time. I felt it inside, but so much of the time it looked normal. And every once in a while it would come up and have a visible problem. But you know something else that is interesting that relates to this story? Is I walked into St. Joseph Regional Medical Center. Like, have you ever wondered why so many hospitals bear Christian names? Like, have you ever wondered, like, why, like, the medical symbol itself, and there's kind of two, you've got a rod with two snakes, and you've got a rod with one snake. Like, you can, some people are going to try to convince you that that's from Greek mythology, and so that's either the rod of Acephalus or the staff of Hermes. Don't let them convince you of that. I mean, when was the last time you went to Apollo's Regional Medical Center? Or when was the last time that you went to Homer's hospital? I mean, don't let him convince you of that. Listen to this quote. Over two millennia, Christian doctors and nurses, inspired by the example and teaching of Jesus of Nazareth, have been at the forefront of efforts to alleviate human suffering, cure diseases, and advance knowledge and understanding. Jesus of Nazareth taught... Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And the mission continues. When we look at healing, the symbol of healing is right here in Numbers 21. And sometimes the healing we need is not visible. You don't see it. You kind of feel it on the inside. It doesn't quite feel right. And then the circumstances or time elapses and all of a sudden it erupts and it's in front of you and it's visible. But then it subsides and it goes away and you live in somewhat of a predictable pattern of this thing inside. It keeps coming up. And this is saying we have something on the inside that needs to be healed. It needs to be healed. What is it? Let's just pray for a second. 
And let's just add God to ask him to reveal. And so, Father, Lord Jesus, we ask, Lord, that you would give us supernatural insight into our soul. We ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, that you would draw, kind of center down, deep into, and that we would find in the depths of us, like, the very thing that we could name it, and we would ask that you would heal it. We would ask that you would enter in, and you would sort, but Lord, we ask that you would give us the ability to name it. So many of us have named it with the wrong name. And so, Lord, we ask for clarity. You know, I mean, even just thinking about uh, what spiritual leadership is. God, is it not exactly what you told Adam to do, to name everything? Is it not just naming it and calling what it is and naming it to ourselves and naming it to our people and our family and those that we're in community with and naming it to you? Not fully understanding it. Definitely not grasping the weight of it. Sometimes only bemoaning the symptoms and the brokenness that we feel because of it. But at the same time, making an alliance with it. Jesus, help us name it. The discontent that we feel of what you provided. The bitterness that we carry because of what you did or didn't do. The unforgiveness that we press upon everyone around us but if they try to press the same measure against us we call foul lord help us name it father i pray that just as a snake was lifted up and anyone who gazed upon it might be healed lord as we see jesus lifted up that we might be healed even this morning in jesus name amen even to kind of catch up a little bit of where we are. Um, in Numbers uh, 21, this is really the story of the second generation of the Israelites. Um, if you back up and you look in Numbers 13 and then up to Numbers 20, uh, the first generation of the Israelites in the desert, they start dying off. Now, they're not all dead. Like We get a census in chapter 26 where it finally confirms that the only people of the first generation, the parent generation of the Israelites, uh, are dead in verse 26 with a census except for Joshua, Caleb, and, and Moses. And so this is kind of the first interaction. The kids who are now like adults, the people who were once at the kid table are now at the big table and they're making decisions. And in some way, they are so different. If you look at the first few verses of this chapter, they get attacked by an army and they don't like run, they don't get scared. They stand and they fight and they dedicate the fight to the Lord. In some ways, they're so different. They will go and they will stand on the border of the promised land and they will walk in and they will conquer city after city after city. In some ways, they are so different. In some ways, they are so similar. Just like their parents grumbled, they grumble. Just like they, you know, look at Moses, their leaders, and they blame him for stuff, they do the same. They are so similar, and yet they are so different. And when you have kids, you are going to realize that they are so similar, and they are so different. We uh, recently had this 
thing with our kids. Uh, we're three of them. And so they had to miss out on a movie night. And uh, it, was, uh, it was dramatic. I mean, it was like the worst punishment we could ever do. I mean, you would assume that we're like waterboarding them or something really, really awful. I mean, it was chaos. I mean, they were sad and they all acted differently. Uh, you know, some of them just kind of got sad and just wanted to be alone. Uh, one of them kind of got violent uh, with their bed. I'm being very careful with my pronouns, so you don't know. Uh, with their bed. At one point, they decided they were going to tear their bed apart, which it didn't work. Um, I built the bed. It's way too heavy, way overbuilt. It's ridiculous. And uh, afterwards, Kinsey and I were sitting there talking about it, and she was filling me in like, no, they, they tried to tear their bed apart. Where do they get that? And I was just kind of quiet. I was like, no, no, I tried that once when I was a kid. I remember, I remember, I was so mad. Uh, my, my parents, uh, my mom wouldn't let me wear something to church that I thought was super cool and it wasn't appropriate or wasn't right. And I remember they said, go change. Like, no, 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 man, this is cool. All my friends want to see me like this. If I wear what you want me to wear, it's going to haunt me and I won't be able to get a prom date. Why don't you want me to have a prom date one day? You know, it was like this season's events, and they said, no, go change. And I went up there, and I stood on, the, on my bed, and I grabbed the headboard, and I thought to myself, I'm going to tear this thing off. I'm just going to tear it off. And I grabbed it, and I pulled, and I strained, and I pushed, and nothing happened because that bed was made in the 1950s, and it was made of cast iron. And so it was this moment of, like, all my exertion, like, out. I couldn't do anything. And then what do you do? You know, I mean, I'm, I'm like, ugh, ugh. I guess I'll change. You know, I mean, it just changed. And she just looked at me like, this is your fault. In some ways, this generation is so different. And in some ways, it is haunted by the same things. And if you're honest, sometimes we look at our parent or grandparent generation. We'll say, I will never be like that. And if you're not careful, if you're not careful, if you don't find Jesus Christ in this, and if you don't find the right kind of, if you say, I don't want a marriage like my parents, I will never have a marriage like my parents. If you don't find a marriage that reflects the nature that what you want, the chances of you having a marriage just like your parents is very, very high. When I was in driver's ed, um, Coach Hill uh, he used to say, and I'm gonna, I get it wrong because I get all the numbers. He says, um, you gotta keep it between the mayonnaise and the mustard or you'll be ketchup. And so keep between the lines. And just the thing, like when you're driving into headlights, you're not supposed to look at the headlights because whatever you look at, that's kind of what you drift toward. And so you're supposed to look at the outside line. And so if you didn't know that, you need to remember that. Don't stare at the headlights. This is about the second generation finding the same sin inside their souls and not knowing exactly what to do with it. They, like us, have this insatiable grumbling and complaining spirit in our hearts. They, like us, need God to come up with a plan to save them from what's inside. And God, in his mercy, brought something on the outside to bring attention to what was on the inside. And so we're going to look at three things, kind of three symbols that we see here. First, we're going to look at the complaint, the grumbling. It's in the very, very first part, verses 4 and 5. Then we're going to look at the serpent itself. And it's just really in one verse that it talks about it. And then we're going to look at a healing look. What kind of look can save me? And so the very first thing, the complaint. 
I just want you to know, their problem is our problem. An insatiable, complaining heart. It is the original sin that courses through our veins that sometimes we're aware of, sometimes we're not aware of it, but it loves to go dormant and yet plague our lives still. Do you see the complaint? Like this complaint... This very same complaint has been echoed in the wilderness for 40 years now. God has miraculously provided for them, and they have looked at him over and over and say, it's not good enough. Look at verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. The people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? Like once again, we see the same complaint. Like your intentions to save us so many years ago, miraculously, and to provide us all the way. Your intentions are to get us out here and to kill us. Like this is a really low view of God's heart. You've done so much for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we really know you just want to get us. Like we see this complaint over and over. This complaint attacks at the motivation of God himself. It's saying, you're actually against me. You actually have plans to hurt me. You actually don't want to help me. You've just been posturing and now you're going to get us. The second complaint's kind of the same. Look at the second part of verse 5. So they say, you brought us here to die And they say, for there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. And they're talking about manna. Like this attacks God really in the same way. It's just saying, you know, one says, hey, you probably aren't going to do good things for me. You're going to leave me out. You're not going to help me. You're going to get me this far, and you're going to abandon me. We're going to die here. This one says, what you provided isn't enough. You know, at times they've been much, much more specific. Um, I almost said Pacific, not the ocean. Specific. Numbers 11, verses 4 through 6. Another time they had this complaint. It says, now the rabble that was among them had strong cravings. This is all about the cravings of your heart. And the people of Israel also wept again. Do you see the strong cravings, strong emotions? You know, one thing it's challenging in self-leadership it's also challenging in in parenting is to build an environment where you can say every emotion it needs to be recognized every emotion that you have is important like it needs to be named you need to understand it you need to understand why it's there it needs to be recognized but not every emotion should be acted upon Just because you feel that way doesn't mean it needs to be acted upon. Trying to do that. And it's so hard. Like some of us grow up in family dynamics where you can't share any emotion. Some of us grow up in family dynamics on way on the other side where it's explosive. Everything is voiced. How do we like gain control on this? Acknowledge the emotion. Understand the emotion. Present that emotion as valid and to the Lord. But at the same time. Say, is this something to control me or act upon me? Like, this is hard. They have strong cravings. They have strong emotions. And then listen to the complaint. And they said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. 
And now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Like, do you see the problem? The insatiable complaint in their heart is blinding them from what was actually true. Could you imagine, like picture yourself as Moses. And it doesn't say the people. It says that this rabble gathers around and they have strong cravings and they have strong emotions and they are weeping at times they're about to stone you and they say man i wish we could go back to egypt because we got cucumbers for free and now we're here i mean what would your response be i mean could you not imagine like oh yeah back yeah yeah egypt You did get free cucumbers because you never had money, because you were slaves. So many times our emotions take control and we let them run and they don't let us see things rightly. And so this is the complaint that's been going on for 40 years, echoing the desert. God, you really want bad for us. You're going to kill us out here. It would have been better for us to die in Egypt. God, we hate what you provided for us. All we have is this magic bread that falls from heaven. It's all we have. Like their problem is our problem. An insatiable want for more. God is never good enough. What he's provided, it's never enough. He's always holding something back from me because he's probably up there with the triune God and they're probably laughing at me like, look what he really wants. We accuse the heart of God of malicious intent that he is holding back, trying to hurt me. He doesn't want good things for me when he has laid everything before me. We're only into like the third book of the Bible here. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Fourth book of the Bible here. And yet this is the lie from the very beginning. If you look back in Genesis 3... You see the same lie. In Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve were in paradise with God. They had everything before them. I mean, they had one prohibition. The prohibition was trust me and don't eat from that tree. Just trust me. All the other trees are for you. I just need you to trust me. And it's not like they were lacking anything. Like, they had a dynamic spiritual you know, thing going on. Their spiritual relationship was incredible. They walked with God in the cool of the evening. They had like dynamic work satisfaction. Like they were working with God to subdue the earth. They had an incredible marriage. From what we can tell, they lived on a lot of acreage and there were no clothes. I mean, they had a lot of things going for them. God had laid everything before them. With one prohibition... Trust me and don't eat from that tree. And in slithers a snake. And it plants this lie. God is holding out on you. The reason why he put prohibition on you is he doesn't want you to reach the height that you can reach. He's holding back on you. And suddenly that insatiable hunger, that doubt... Like it starts to course through our veins and it's all around us and it's in us and we walk into situations and we see other people with different situations. We think they have it better and we think God is holding out on us. 
Like just some good questions. What do you believe that you have to have? What are you demanding from God right now? Where do you question his goodness? Either because of what is in your circumstances or is in your past. Or where do you question his goodness because what is not in your circumstances? Where are you accusing God? The very first thing is we see a complaint. Are you even aware of your complaint? The second thing is we see this fiery serpent. See, God used the desperation of a snake bite to wake them up from a deeper soul need. Look at verse 6. It says, Then the Lord sent serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. You know, they say a fiery serpent, like almost all commentaries believe this is the adder. And so it wasn't that the snake was on fire. It was that when the snake bit you, it put you on fire. Like if an adder bites you, what happens is that the place that you are bit, it becomes, you know, inflamed and fevery. It feels like it's on fire. And then what follows is you build this high fever and you have an insatiable thirst that you keep drinking and drinking. But you eventually just burn up and you die. Something on the inside burns hotter and hotter and hotter until you die. Like this is the place where the bites you and it puts something inside of you, an unquenchable thirst, and then you die. And right now, I know what you're thinking because I'm thinking it too. Like, wow, God, aren't you kind of jumping the gun? They complain about the food in the cafeteria and you kill people. But there's so much deeper than that. I mean, this thing for 40 years, whatever God does, it's never enough. Whenever it doesn't look the way you want it to, you assume he wants evil for you. Even though he's been providing all along the way in supernatural ways. In ways that are beyond their ability and beyond the ability of their environment. Although now they're suffering from a new snake bite. They've always been suffering from the original snake bite. And they have an unquenchable thirst for more in their soul. Do you not see that? How many famous people do you need to see kill themselves at the height of everything they wanted to realize what you desire is not going to be enough? How many stories do you need to hear of that? Of people saying, who don't kill themselves, who get help, but people saying, man, I put all of my life into this thing, into this sport, or to this company, or this kind of relationship, and when it finally happened, at the height of it, all I found was this, I still felt lonely. I still felt scared. I still heard the narrative of what my dad said over me hundreds and hundreds of times or what my dad didn't say over me hundreds and hundreds of times. I've tried to accomplish this insatiable complaint or hunger in my life and it doesn't work. The French mathematician and theologian Blaise Pascal, he said there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each of us which cannot be satisfied by any created thing but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. You know, with trying to understand, gosh, they complain about the food, and God, you, you start sending snakes to kill them. I just, I just want to ask this. 
What if God asked you, hey, there's this entire nation and you need to change their motivations and their actions. What would you do to change an entire nation? Like, would you sit them down and have a good talking to them? Like, hey, listen, this is serious, guys. How does that work with you? Or, or would you like just, we're really going to educate them. Is that working in our society? We'll just educate and all these problems will go away. Like, I think we just have to acknowledge that the sin that is coursing through my veins, it goes beyond education. It goes beyond a good talking to. I have to get to the end of myself where I own it and I say, I need help. And here in these verses, we actually see this incredible prerequisite to be healing, like what we need for like this volitional, emotional, and soul healing. And so the first is need. Like let me just name it for you. You need, you need, you need, you need need. That's hard to say. You need need. You need pain. You need reconciliation. And you need to stop blaming. And so the first, like you need to understand your need. You have to feel the need or you're never going to seek the healer God. In verse 5... They, they finally, like, man, we have this problem. They knew they were hungry for more, but they didn't know what it was. Even name what the need is driving you. Beneath every porn addiction is not like extra sexiness. It is lust for more control, more approval from others, and for more comfort, more escape. Beneath every flirtatious spirit, man, there is not like a bunch of extroversion. Like, I'm really extroverted. Like, there is a lust to control how people see you and a desire to be wanted and sought after above others. And the things that we think will make that go away will not put it to death. Lots of sex in marriage will not put your porn addiction to death. Lots of understanding and acceptance in marriage will not put a flirtatious spirit to death. There's a need beneath it that is driving. The second thing we need is we need pain. The physical pain of the snake bite showed the deeper symptoms of their soul. And this may be alarming. And you may disagree with me, but you will never wake up to the deep needs of your heart without physical trouble and physical pain in the circumstances of your life. You will always try to manage it and handle it, and you will always stiff arm God at the borders of your life, and you will say, I have it under control. You need pain. The next thing that we see here, and just moving kind of quickly, is you see reconciliation. Like spiritual and emotional healing comes with reconciliation. In verse 7, it says it fairly plainly. It says, and the people came to Moses and said, and so at first they said, we have sinned. At first they came complaining, like their relationship was troubled, and now they're reconciling. They said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. And so, like, there's a reconciling relationship. Earlier they were angry at Moses, then they were troubled by what happened, and now they're reconciling with Moses, and now Moses is praying for them. Like, this is so central, and it's so difficult to how Jesus talks about, how do I know I'm forgiven from God? He says, you will know that you are living in the forgiveness of God when you can forgive those. 
those around you. Like Matthew 6.14. Like this is hard for me to read. It says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now that doesn't mean that I earn my salvation by forgiving others, but it does mean in the opposite direction. When I have experienced the forgiveness of God and it is real in my life, I can approach those who have sinned against me with open hands to forgive them. I'm not saying that's easy, but I'm saying that Jesus said this in many places, that he correlates a vertical forgiveness from God with the ability to do a horizontal forgiveness of others. And if the horizontal forgiveness for others does not exist, he says, are you sure you've experienced the forgiveness of God? It's hard. But what we see right here, I just literally spit on my hand. What we see right here is we see in a difficult situation, we see a relationship that has been strained being reconciled where it comes and it doesn't just go back to the relationship, it stops the blame shifting. Like on in verse 7, it says, we have sinned. It doesn't give anything else. It doesn't say, man, you misled us, so I thought this. It doesn't say any reasonable person would have acted the same way I did. It doesn't say, man, I was just scared, and so that's what happened. I mean, really, it's the environment's fault. It says, I've sinned. Like spiritual and emotional healing come with the death of blame shifting. You may not own all of this sin, but you have to own up to your sin. They came to Moses and they said, we have sinned. They didn't have any more excuses. What are your excuses? What are the excuses that you lean to that you say and maybe other people buy it? I mean, you say it to other people and, like, and you don't know what they did. And then you explain it. Maybe other people are like, oh, yeah, man, that was crazy. Maybe they buy it, but you have this deep fear inside. There's no way God is going to buy it. And you have this fear inside that you don't know if you really believe it. Like, what are the excuses? Are you sure they're valid? Have you even done this? What if you doubted your excuse? What if you just said, maybe there's something in me that really wants to feel this way or wants to be like this. Like, maybe there's something alongside it that I've made a treaty with this that I need to open up my hands and just own some of it. But these things, this is a process of how, like first you've got to become aware that there's a need. That usually happens through pain in your environment or in your body where God's trying to wake you up. Then typically there is relationships that need to be reconciled where it's hard, but you just need to go and be like, listen, I know I sinned against you. It was me. And you need to stop blame shifting. Like This opens us up to a deeper problem inside of us. And so we first, we see this complaint. Do you see a complaint in your heart? This hasn't happened yet, God, and I need it to happen. Do you see the, the need and the brokenness of the circumstances? What is the snake bite in your life right now? And then the third phase of this is the saving look. A gaze of faith that heals. They were healed By a saving look. Look at verse 7. The end of verse 7 it says, So Moses prayed for the people 
And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Like, that's just, that's weird. I mean, people are dying. They're holding their snake bites. They're limping in. They're like, man, we need more water. He's like, not to worry. I made a PowerPoint presentation for you. Like, it's weird. Like, this is not going to help psychologically. Like, the thing that's afflicting you, we're going to make a really big image of it. It's going to be bigger, and if you look at it, you'll be okay. Like, I don't know if psychologically that's going to help. I don't know if, like, spiritually, like, this didn't make sense to them spiritually. Like, over and over in the Bible, serpents represent evil. Like Isaiah 59, verse 5, Jeremiah 51, verse 34, Micah 7, verse 17, Psalms 58, verses 4 through 5, Matthew 3, 7, 12, 34, and 23, 33. Matthew likes to talk about it a lot. Over and over in the scriptures, the serpent represents evil. And so it says, well, let's just look at something evil. That'll help. Like it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense physically. I have venom in my blood, but if I look at something, I will be healed. Like, I don't know. I mean, I know there's a lot of essential oils and stuff. I don't know if that's going to work. But it makes sense if we understand the gospel. It was pointing to something else that we need to see lifted up. It's pointing forward for our benefit because Jesus, this makes perfect sense. You know, this comes up in John chapter 3 when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And so Nicodemus, a teacher, probably like the theologian of, of, the, of the Israel people, like at this time, he comes to Jesus late at night and he says, Teacher, I know you're from God because I see the things you do, but I just don't understand. You know, we need to understand what you're all about, what it is. And the conversation immediately goes to a spiritual problem that has to be dealt with. And he starts off by saying, Hey, you have to be born again to be saved. And so he steps back and he gets real physical. How is that possible? I don't understand how, even if I could do that, I don't understand how it would help. But what he was saying is there's actually nothing that you can do to fix the situation, but God can do something in you. It has to come upon you. It has to be done to you because of your circumstance. You have to be all new. You can't just revamp your life. You can't look at the broken part of your life and say, this is wrong, and I'm going to work at it to make it right. That won't save you. You have to be all new. And so then it keeps pressing the conversation, and he uses this analogy. He says, this was done so you could understand what I'm going to do. And so John chapter 3, verse 11 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. I have told you earthly things and you do not believe. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descends from heaven, the Son of Man. And so he says, listen Nicodemus, you are well learned. You do know the scriptures. You are put together, but you only have an earthly understanding. And I have a heavenly understanding. And you need to know that your circumstance is far worse than any kind of Bible memorization can help, than any kind of like discipline can help, than any kind of like human reconciliation can help. It is above you, but I've been there. 
but we've already told you about it. And then he says, listen, we've already told you about it. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must, must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him, a saving gaze, a gaze with faith, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus was saying, what that was is what I am. Jesus was saying, what that represented, the healing that they did experience was pointing to a deeper healing that we all need. The first snake bite that is in our veins, that is rushing through us, that we doubt God, that we want autonomy from God, that we don't want to ever all be in on God, that we don't trust Him, that is in us. And I am the one who can save you. And so just going back to like, it just doesn't make sense. The thing that was afflicting them, the snake that was biting them, the snake that was killing them, the evil that was in the camp that was killing them, they made a symbolic part of it and they lifted up and said, look at that to be saved. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, what happened on the cross wasn't just symbolic. My sin was laid upon Jesus. And if I look with a loving gaze, if I look at the cross and I see my sin upon him and I declare that Jesus was strong enough to carry my sin, then I can be healed. Where do you feel God's holding out on you? Where do you feel the bite from that snake where you doubt his intentions and you're just not sure. Where is the complaint? Are you aware of the need? Are you at a place where you can look to the cross of Jesus and you can trust him to carry it? That is the saving look of salvation. Look to Jesus and be healed. Let me pray for us. Father, Lord, we, um, God, I don't want to minimize. I don't want to minimize where sin and pain and suffering has affected our lives. And I don't want to minimize the places where people we should have been able to trust have failed us. I don't want to minimize the limps that we walk with. I don't want to minimize the scars that we have. But I want to declare that upon the cross, you bore it all. And then you rose again so that you could help us. And so even just walking to communion, Lord, it is a picture of that. Like we walk with what we have. We walk with what we have and we bring nothing to the table but at the table we find everything that saved us the broken body of Jesus the way we take communion is we 
start on the bread side and we pull a piece of bread away to remember the broken body of Jesus. And we find in symbolic form the blood of Jesus. We take the bread and we dip it into either the wine, which is in the stoneware, or the grape juice, which is in the glassware. And remember that at the table represents everything that saved us. My sin was laid upon Jesus. And if I look to him, he can heal me. And so if, if you look to the cross for your salvation, we invite you to communion. If you're unsure and you're looking to everything else, <clears throat> we have verses on the screen for you. <clears throat> if you have a very specific place in your life where you're doubting the goodness of God and you realize you need to be healed from it, we invite you to ask someone to pray for you. And so in the back, we'll have people standing around. They'll have a lanyard on. They're there to pray for you. And you can tell them as much or as little. But they want to pray, and they want to pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, because of the good work of Jesus Christ, that that part of your life would be healed. That you would understand. That you would see Jesus working there, and you would trust him. Father, Lord, we ask for help. Help us as we come. In Jesus' name, amen. Come when you're ready.